I'd ask you if you'd open your copy of the Scriptures and join me this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Today we're going to cover two chapters in this narrative of God bringing uh, His Word to His people and how He will unveil His plan to lead them from the transition from the judges to the monarchy. And this morning, we're picking up really where we left off last week. Uh, Chapters 4 through 6 really kind of are a heavy word of judgment from God upon sinners. And so I want to ask you this morning as you're turning uh, to your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Samuel 5, or if you want to use the the pew Bibles or the chair Bibles, uh, they're on page 228. Um, What's the right response that we should have when we fall into God's hands? That's the question I want to ask this morning and answer. What is the right response sinners should have when they fall into the hands of the Holy God? And I think the right answer is that we ought to cry out for His mercy and salvation, not His departure. And I want to show you from the text this morning, we're given two examples that clearly show God's holiness and sinners are falling into the hands of this holy God. And we see how sinners react when God's holiness invades their lives, both from the point of view of the Philistines and then later from the point of view of the Israelites. And both parties say, God, depart from us. we got to get rid of God. And I want to argue that when we fall into God's holy hands as sinners, we would be wise to cry out for His mercy and His salvation rather than His departure. So, Lord, we, we do simply ask that You would bless Your Word and build Your people through it today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if we look at chapter 5... We're not going to be able to read this portion of Scripture like we normally do. It's, it's a large portion. I hope that uh, you had time to dig into it this week. But chapter 5, verse 1 opens, When the Philistines captured the ark, which connects us to what had happened in chapter 4. A battle was fought between the Israelites and the Philistines. The ark was treated as a good luck charm. The Israelites bring it from the tabernacle in Shiloh to the battle in Ebenezer, and they expect that the ark will deliver them from their enemy, the Philistines. And in fact, what happens is God has constructed all this to fight against His own people because of their sinfulness. And the battle is lost by the Israelites. The ark is captured, and God wipes out an ungodly and wicked priesthood, all in one fell swoop. So chapter 5 gives us a picture of God's ark now in the hands of the Philistines. That takes us all the way through chapter 6 and verse 12. So I want to just bring your attention to some things. First five verses, we see that God's ark is brought into the temple of an idol named Dagon. He was a Philistine god. It was a god that they worshipped, and they had temples of him scattered throughout the cities. And now notice that it says when the ark When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. This is a trip of some 30 miles southwest of where the battle was fought. Now, in Israel, that's not southwest like where I came from in Indiana. 
where you can go straight as the crow flies and have almost level ground to cover. They had to cut through ravines and all kinds of topography that made it difficult. But it's carried back to one of the five chief cities of the Philistines. And the Philistines, verse 2 says, took the ark of God and they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. This is very symbolic, lost on our ears and eyes. But what they did by this is they said, our God defeated Israel's God, the God that they were terrified of in chapter 4, and said, men, be men, fight for your lives. We don't want to be slaves to the Israelites. Their God defeated the Egyptians. All we have to do is win. We must fight. So their God won, apparently. And they're going to bring Israel's God into the temple of their God as a symbol, as a very real understanding that their God, Dagon, had defeated Israel's God. The ark is a trophy of war. It's a symbol of a weak God defeated by a superior God. Or is it? The very next morning, Dagon begins to have trouble in his own house. Look at verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, the author is very clear to make that point, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So, I mean, this is a little bit of humor, right? So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. This great mighty God his statue, his representation of him had to be picked up from worshiping the ark of Israel's God and set back in his place where he belongs. There's a lot of irony there. But it doesn't stop there because in verse 4, the very next day, what do we see? Dagon had fallen down again on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now there's a lot going on here. Let me just say it this way. The observation that his head and hands were cut off and lying on the threshold of his temple... That threshold was the the very place where the sacred was separated from the secular. It's the place where you move from the mundane world into a world of worship. And these objects, these body parts, are laying there. It led to this superstitious act where they stepped over the threshold, even till the time that Samuel was written, because they understood their God had been humiliated. Now, severed heads and severed hands were common practice in military campaigns, both as a way to count the dead and as a sign of power over one's enemies. They take the heads and turn them into trophies. We're going to see that later in the book of uh, Samuel. Samson, we know from Judges, what did they do when they captured Samson after uh, his hair was cut and his power, the spirit, had left him? They brought him into the temple of their god, They had him chained up there, grinding grain like a beast, and they brought him out for sport. 
He was a trophy. Their God was greater. David would cut off Goliath's head in 1 Samuel 17 and present it to King Saul. The Philistines, in Saul's final battle against them at the end of 1 Samuel, they find his body among the slain on the mounts of Gilboa, and they cut off his head, they strip off his armor, and they take him to their temples, and they show him off. Their God is victorious. And they fastened his body and the bodies of his son to a wall, likely a temple to Dagon. And yet in this passage, what do we see? We see no mortal man entered the temple doing this. We discover that God, in fact, did this to Dagon. God is a God of war, Miriam rightly says, at celebrating God leading Israel through the Red Sea and his victory over the army of the Pharaoh, drowning them. She said, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name in Exodus 15.3. Our God is a mighty warrior. He is, as we sang earlier, the Lion of Judah. He is also the, the Lamb that was slain. We'll get to that in a little bit. God demonstrates his superiority not only over false gods, but he shows that he is a mighty warrior. He uses the images that would have been known in that day. There was no doubt among the Philistines what was taking place here. We think of a nice piece of china or a granite statue. It falls and it breaks off at a weak spot hands and a neck. No, 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 no. That was not lost on them, which is why they began the superstitious practice of stepping over that threshold. They knew their God was inferior to Israel's. God would later say to the gods in Babylon in Isaiah 46, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. The gods of the Babylonians are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. And he says this, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnants of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from before your birth carried from the womb even to your old age. I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and will save. Tanner prayed for the, those who were older in our church in his prayer, and this would be a great passage for you to reflect on. God has seen you before you were even formed in your mother's womb. And he will carry you safely to the grave, Christian. God is the one who created, sustains, and keeps us. Now, here's something that we understand, we need to understand. Paganism says this. You remember? They put Dagon back in his place. Paganism says this. Fundamentally, the gods need us to sustain them. But this is not true about Yahweh. Dagon had to be put back in his place, but Yahweh is not helpless. He didn't need Israel's help. He fights his own battles as seen in Dagon's temple. He defends his name. He comes into this God's house and humiliates him. And Dagon can do nothing but fall down before the true and living God. But not only does God 
really humiliate and embarrass and prove that Dagon is no real God. But then we see in verses 6 through 12 of chapter 5 that his hand is heavy upon the Philistines as well. Look, we read that the Lord was... The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. So there's a lot of imagery here, and I just, man, I wish we had more time. They carry this ark from Shiloh to Ebenezer. The ark is lost in war, and then the Philistines carry it to their God's temple. And yet it is God's hand that is working all this. It's God's hand that they welcome this as a trophy into their place of worship, and God ends up turning it about, and they're perishing in his hand. I mean, the irony is just incredible. We're told that they, the people are terrified because the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. He afflicted them with tumors, both in Ashdod and its territory. And so these men see how things were, and they said... This ark has to go. It can't remain in our place, in our towns, in our cities. It's fighting against us and against Dagon, our God. So what do they do? They gather the lords of the Philistines, and they say, what are we supposed to do with the ark of Israel? They answered, let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So, hey, that's good. Not my problem anymore, right? Let's send it to Gath. It goes there. But after they brought it, verse 9, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. He afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So then they sent it to Akron. And guess what? Man, word is spread by then. So Akron's like, what in the world are you guys doing? They brought the, this to us in order to kill us. No way is the ark staying here. So once again, all the lords of the Philistines are gathered together. And they say, send the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So what we see here in these verses is that God's hand is heavy on the Philistines. And some think that tumors, in conjunction with what when we read of mice in chapter 6 and verse 5, indicate the bubonic plague. Regardless of how these tumors, whether they were lymph nodes, armpits, all that kind of stuff, and they were growing, or whether it was, doesn't matter if it was COVID-19 or the bubonic plague, it's all from the Lord's hand. That's said at the beginning and at the end. The Philistines even knew it was Lord's hand. However he carries about his judgment, even unbelievers see that God is at work. Eventually, they became painfully aware that God could not be stopped in their land. Their God was of no help, and they had no power against him. It's interesting, isn't it, that political leaders vainly attempt to solve a spiritual problem. No one wants the ark to remain in the land. And finally, they call the religious experts. Look at the beginning of verse chapter 6. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what 
we shall send it to its place. What are we to do with it, and how do we transport this thing that nobody dares touch anymore? It took them a while, but they finally called the religious experts and they asked, what should be done? And that ought to remind us that we live even today in a world that is both material and spiritual. Paul said this in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual world that we may be blinded to. Paul would write again in Corinthians, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Which is why Paul could also say that greater is he who is in you, Christian, than he who is in the world. So the Philistines have a dilemma. Their God has been humiliated by Israel's. And they have experienced his heavy hand of judgment as well. What will they do? How should sinners respond when they fall into the hands of the holy God? Well, you look at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 6, and you see their response. After seven painful and horrible months, the lords of the Philistines are finally ready to admit defeat. They summon their religious advisors to instruct them on how to return the ark. The advisors tell them, return it, and by doing this, you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they go on to say, you must make images of the tumors you've experienced, the images of your mice that ravage the land, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Verse 5. So the ark has to be returned, and with it must be a guilt offering accompanied. That guilt offering would symbolize the very point of their affliction. The image of tumors would represent the contamination and the uncleanness that had swept across the land. They would, in a sense, recognize that this tumor is connected to this God as a sign of our guilt, and they would send an offering that shows that, and they would offer restitution as an admission of guilt. But along with this instruction in verses 3, 4, and 5, Notice verse 6. The elders or these religious professionals also include a rebuke to the lords. You, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? I mean, Here they are, apparently keeping the ark under these conditions for seven months, indicated either stubbornness on on the part of these leaders or perhaps stupidity. They didn't make the connection earlier. And it's also an interesting reminder to us that knowledge of what happened in Egypt hundreds of years prior to this point was still widely known, which is what God told Abraham he was going to do in in Genesis chapter 12, 
God said, through you, I will create a family that I will turn into a nation so that all the world will know who I am. And we're seeing that take place right here. Hundreds of years after the Exodus, that memory of what God had done to the gods of Egypt and to Pharaoh and his mighty army still weighs heavy on the hearts of these Philistines. Which shouldn't be a surprise to us because Exodus 15, 14, when they are traveling through the wilderness, we are told again in Miriam's song, celebrating God's victory, the peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. I mean, this is a fulfillment of God's word. Exodus chapter 9 and verse 13, the Lord said this to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve thee, serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my glory to the world. So these religious leaders rebuke the political leaders for not understanding that God's hand is heavy upon them and they ought to respond by sending the ark back along with a guilt offering. They, they chart a course, though. Did you notice it as you read through this in verses 7, 8, and 9? They picked a scenario. They created a scenario that would have no real way of working. Let's, let, let me just bring that to your attention, all right? Look, verse 7. Now then, here's how you're going to return it to him. That was the second part of your question back in verse 2. So here's how you're going to do it. You're going to take and prepare a new cart. And two milk cows, not working cows, but milk cows, and guess what? Not only are they milk cows and not working cows, but there has never been a yoke on these two milk cows, and you are going to yoke these never-yoked-before cattle to the cart. And because they're milk cows, they've got nursing calves. And you're going to lock up those calves. And you're going to take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So here's what they're doing. Let's make, create the most improbable scenario, one that likely will not work. But if it does work, it will irrefutably demonstrate that all this is the result of Israel's God. If it's merely coincidence, then the animals will ex act exactly as one would expect. They will fight the yoke they have never worn before. They will try to get back to their calves. In other words, for this to work... God has to intervene. 
Sounds a bit like 1 Kings 18, doesn't it? When Elijah's on the loan on the mountain, there's 450 prophets of Baal, and they're offering sacrifices, and whoever's God will call down fire wins. After a whole day of cutting themselves and screaming and chanting and doing all their stuff, the 450 prophets of Baal have only wearied themselves and bled themselves. Nothing has happened. But when it's Elijah's turn to show that the God of Israel is not Baal, he says, in a time of drought, I want you to get nine, ten gallons of water, and I want you to make three trips of dumping that all over the altar. He digs a trench around it. That trench fills with water. And then he prays a short and simple prayer, and the fire comes down from heaven. It consumes not only the, the bull that was sacrificed and the wood, but it burns up the stones. It licks up the water from the trench. And everybody has to say what? This is the real God. This is not new in Israel's history. It's not new for God to be challenged to show up in such a way that he irrefutably proves he is real. These men set this up. They obey. They return the ark to Israel. Verses 10 says the men did so. And guess what? Surprisingly, verse 12, the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway. They weren't going to Hermosa and then making their way to Hot Springs and somehow ended up in Pier. They knew exactly where they were to be going. God's hand was upon them. And they were lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. We see an example of God's holiness and man's sinfulness in the Philistines. Now let's look briefly at what happens in our second example. Where God's holiness is demonstrated yet again among the Israelites this time. And yet again, we see man's sinfulness. If you look at verses 13 down to the end of our passage in chapter 7 and verse 2, you see that the people of Beth Shemesh are working in the fields. They see the ark return, and they grab these animals. They slaughter them. They take the cart, break it up, and turn it into kindling. And there's a great stone out in the field, and they offer this sacrifice to the Lord. They rejoice. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. We're given in verses 16 through 18 details about the lords and their guilt offering, a word about the great stone of witness where the ark was placed. But notice in verse 19, joy turns to mourning because of sin. And he, being God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And that's what we see happening in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7. So what we see here is that mourning, uh, joy turns to mourning because of sin. Because of 
either indifference or sacrilege, the men of Beth Shemesh are struck down by a holy God for defiling His holiness. Now, there's a question here, and this is one of those difficult points because the Hebrew honestly gets a little messy, and there's a lot of different understandings. You might see a footnote underneath 70, and it might say 50,000. It might say 50,000 and 70. Because the, the Hebrew is a little weird here in, in uh, being copied from one to another copy. Something was confusing. And so some think that uh, it was 50,000 men or 50,070. But in reality, we know that the city or the town, the village of Beth Shemesh, wasn't that large. It was a few thousand so then the question is, well, maybe the 70 is actually a, it's like, remember, 10% was to go to the Lord as a tithe? Well, God is afflicting a portion of the people in proportion to what has taken place. All that to say, I think it's 70. Still a lot of people to die, but notice, why did they die? Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Now, some would think that they looked inside. They took the two cherubim, that golden angels that were on top that stretched from side to side. They lifted off the cover and they looked in upon the two stone tablets that were there. And that's what did it. But what's interesting to me, we'll get to this in a moment, is that the language actually says it's because they looked at the ark. Not looked in the ark. And notice the response in verse 20. No one is safe when God is near. Who can live in the presence of this holy God? Secondly, how quickly can we get rid of him? Where can we send the ark? Now, I want to fast forward in your mind. If you've been a Christian for a while, no doubt you've heard this passage preached out of Mark chapter 5. But in verses 15 through 17, ironically enough, a similar experience happened to Jesus. So he traveled across the, the Sea of Galilee. He comes to the land of the Gerasenes. And there was a man who's living in the tomb who's possessed by many demons. In fact, they call themselves Legion, for we are many. Jesus casts out the demons. This man who had at times been chained and could break chains, who lived in a graveyard because he could not live in the community, who people were terrified. He's the, he's the original ghost story guy. And Jesus sets him free. Word gets back to the city. People come out to see it, and we are told that they see this man in his right mind, and they are terrified of Jesus, and they beg him to leave their presence. That ought to stir something in our mind about if God is feared like this in the Old Testament and Jesus is feared like this in the New, what do they have in common? They're both holy. They're both sovereign. They are both divine. So what is it that sinners should do when they fall into the hands of the living and holy God? And here's where I would argue they ought to cry out for His mercy and salvation, not His departure. So in the last few minutes this morning, I want to make a case for this. Look, look at what the Philistines did and the Israelites did with their knowledge of the Holy One of Israel. The Philistines see the ark go back to its place and they return to Ekron. Once the pressure is over, the danger removed, they simply return to their old ways. 
And isn't that true for us as sinners as well? It's so easy to have the crisis managed, and then we have no more interest in God. It's so easy for sinners to stop short of embracing God and serving Him. The Israelites show their indifference to God's holiness. It's, it's what's the setup of chapter 4, allowing them to treat the ark as divine, believing it would save them in battle. They never asked God for direction what they should do. They just made their plans. And when the ark was lost in battle, what is the, what is the cry that ends chapter 4? But the glory has departed from Israel. And even after God returns the ark, what did they do again? They defile his holiness, which leads to divine judgment. And then they say almost verbatim what the Philistines said. How can we get this out of way from us? To whom can we send it? Thus, we learn something of the weakness of human character. When we encounter the holy God, we want to get out of the trap that we find ourselves in. Our sin leads us to a place where the consequences are greater than we ever expected. And all we want is freedom from those consequences, but we really don't want God. And desiring freedom from suffering is not the same thing as repentance. So we see something in human character, but I want to show you something. The reason why I think the right response when a sinner falls into the hands of the holy God is to cry out for mercy and salvation rather than say, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, depart from me. Because in this passage, I think we see something of God's character. Let me rehearse this for you yet again. God stooped low to reveal himself to the Philistines. And who were these people but the very enemies of God and Israel? They were outside of the covenant. But if you look at chapter 4 and verses 7 through 8, word of Israel's God had reached the ears of the Philistines. That comes again in chapter 6, verses 3, 5, 6, 9, 12, and 16. God is giving unbelievers, pagans, people outside of the covenant, glimpses of his character and his glory. This hints at the promise that he made to Abraham that one day he would bless all the nations through Abraham's offspring. Now, Israel isn't Philistines. The Philistines didn't have the law. They could touch the ark probably without any thought of it. But the Philistines were not like that, or the Israelites were not like that. God had given them the law in order to preserve life. So Numbers chapter 4 shows us a lot of what helps makes sense of what takes place here in 1 Samuel chapter 6. You see, the entire tribe of Levi, one of the twelve, had been selected out of all the twelve tribes to represent God to the nation and the people of Israel. They weren't going to inherit land. Their inheritance was the Lord. And in that tribe, there were three separate clans. They all, all had unique duties that would revolve around the tabernacle and one day the temple. But in one clan alone, the clan of the Kohathites, there was within that clan one family who could do things with the ark, and that was Aaron and his sons. Only they could look upon the most holy things. And further, only after Aaron and his sons had covered and then wrapped the ark 
and all the other holy utensils that were used, the table, the plates, the lamps, the dishes, the utensils, and put them on a frame of poles. Only then could the rest of the Kohathites carry them. So we don't have Aaron's offspring here. It says Levites were there, but clearly because of what took place, the judgment of God, these Levites were not the right Levites. They weren't from Aaron's tribe. So you got to ask, why didn't they bring the high priest to handle all this? Why didn't they follow God's instruction from Numbers 4? But as we talk and see God's grace, we see a clear word from God that his ark, the seed of his presence, was to be dealt with according to his commands. And to disobey God is to invite death upon yourself. And that's seen in God's dealing with sinners, whether they're Philistines or Israelites. He did not want his holiness to kill Israel, which is why in his mercy he gave the commands on how to handle the most holy things. You know what that tells me? That tells me that God doesn't conform to our culture. God will not conform to our indifference. When sinners encounter the holy God, we are right to shake and tremble in his presence. Both the Philistines and the Israelites rushed to get away from God. Why wasn't there any self-reflection? Why wasn't there any humbling of themselves? Why didn't they cry out for life? And that, to me, speaks to what we should do as we see the poor examples in this passage. When God reveals his holiness to us, Through his son Jesus and through his word, it is a means of grace. It is an invitation, in fact, a call to order our lives around him and his word. You see, Paul understood this. He rejoices that God did, through Jesus Christ, uh, reconcile us to himself. He says this in Ephesians 2.13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We see the gospel even in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 45. Listen to these words in verses 19 through 23. I am the Lord, I speak truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Isn't that appropriate for the Philistines? Even the Israelites. And what God says, I want you to come to me. Declare and present your case. Take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. So this is what God says. To all these pagan nations, all peoples who worship things made with hands, who have dreams and idols that distract them from the holy and true God, he says this, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return 
Turn to me. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. We sang that this morning. And that Paul echoes this in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is true that God is holy, that he possesses a terrifying holiness upon which no man can look and live. And it is also true that God wants us to know him as our Father. That he wants to adopt us and bring us into his family. And we cannot hold these two truths in opposition. We cannot say we see one and not the other. We can't embrace God as an intimacy and then abandon awe and respect for him as our culture does and much of Christianity does today. Nor can we only know God from a distance and fear him because he welcomes us to his family and to his side. This passage prepares us for God's grace by showing us that sinners need a Savior. And further, we learn that God reveals his holiness to both Gentiles and Jewish sinners, which is a precursor to the gospel going to the nations. And then we see that apart from God's grace, no sinner stands a chance when encountering him. And although sinners want to escape God's presence, God says, I have provided a way in which I can dwell in the midst of sinners without killing them. I can make them clean. He does it in the Old Testament sacrificial system with laws about the priestly roles that both indicate that apart from God's grace, his holiness would consume us. And yet we see that sinners reject all the provisions of God, proving that it's really the heart that's the issue and not God. So from this passage, we learn this. We are sinful, every single one of us, and that that sin will ultimately lead us to death apart from God's intervention. We also learn several things about God. He is not helpless like any idol of our own making. He is not dependent on us to fill him up, to put him in his place, to provide for him, to care for him. And we serve a God who does not hide who he is. This is a God. I want to introduce you to a God who created all things and he has dominion over all things and then he has spoken into his creation and revealed who he is because he wants to be known by his creation. God revealed himself to sinners. Notice the sinners in Philistia and the sinners in Israel. He is making himself known to us today to prove that he is the only real God, the only God who's at work. It's not a coincidence when Israel was defeated, and it wasn't a coincidence when Dagon fell over twice, and it wasn't a coincidence that the Philistines were afflicted with tumors and disease. We learn a third thing about God. He is a God to be feared, but he's also a God to be loved and worshipped. 
His holiness is so unlike anything else, yet that very holiness is intended to draw sinners into a right relationship with Him through Jesus. And to respond to God's holiness by defiling it or by demanding that God leaves will lead to your death. Lord God, we pray to you as the creator of heavens and earth and all that is in them. And we are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us so that we might be reconciled to you. Help us to run towards you and not from you. Oh Lord, please show us your glory in such a way that we are rightly humbled and laid low. But also show us your grace in Jesus that sinners will be drawn to you. Help your church to make much of you without violating your holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.